Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, I just want to highly recommend to you Michael Lewis's most recent book, The Premonition. It is an easily digestible and understandable exposition on how the United States responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. It has a cast of characters of really incredible individuals like my guest today who had been working on public health issues and pandemic issues for years and what happens when the systems we rely on fail. And now, here's the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Charity Dean, the CEO, co-founder, and chairman of The Public Health Company. Prior to founding The Public Health Company, Dr. Dean served as the Associate Director for the California Department of Public Health, Chief Public Health Officer for Santa Barbara County, and was a key member of the executive team directing the COVID-19 outbreak response in California. She was also profiled in Michael Lewis's most recent book, The Premonition, which really, I think, guys, does an incredible job of outlining just how we got to where we are vis-a-vis the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Dean, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Well, listen, I am very excited to have you on today because I listened to The Premonition before I read it. And I'm always a big fan of Michael Lewis, and I think he does an extremely able job, as he always was, of explaining complex things to people like me who need simple answers. So you are obviously a medical doctor, and you started in the book anyway as the public health officer for Santa Barbara County in California. And talking about how serving in that role, you had a lot of responsibilities, not a hell of a lot of support, but also a lot of authority to do the things you thought necessary in the context of public health. And what I was most fascinated by, and something that you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago when we first talked, was that there isn't really such a thing as a public health system in America. There are however many counties, there are however many cities, there's obviously 50 states and territories. But talk to me a little bit on how it actually works in the United States. We think about healthcare, I think, in the context of insurance companies and what happens if you get hurt or you get sick, but we don't really think about it in the context of public health like we saw with COVID, as we're still seeing with COVID. Sure. And it's a great topic because it speaks to the beautiful history of the United States. In other words, as our country grew and local health departments sprung up across the country to meet needs like cholera or water safety or food safety. Local health officers or physicians were appointed to run them. And as the country expanded westward and more of these jurisdictions popped up and states were formed, of course, each state formed a kind of governance and gave different authorities to their local health officers versus the state. And so what we have today is really a collection of about 3,200 local public health departments, each with a leader, oftentimes who is a doctor like I was, under some type of state governance. And every state does it differently. 
And so really what we have in the United States is 3,200 different frontline armies, for lack of a better word, who fight communicable disease in their communities, are largely off the radar of the rest of their community, just like I was. I was a largely unknown entity. And yet they are the ones responsible for this massive risk of infectious disease that we now know can take down a local economy, can take down businesses, can destroy lives and livelihoods. And so when I was a local health officer in Santa Barbara County, I took it incredibly seriously. The first thing I did was sit down and read the law and was amazed to discover that I had police powers that superseded that of the governor and that if there was a threat from a communicable disease, I could do whatever needed to be done. It's interesting because in county government, it sounds like in California anyway, the two people with the most expansive individual authority would be the county health officer, an appointed role, and the sheriff, an elected role. But that comes with a lot of responsibility. But let me skip to the end of Lewis's book, because what you realized is that you've given an enormous amount of authority and an enormous amount of responsibility, but rarely do folks in that role have the commensurate resources to do the jobs they need to do. That's right. And I would say this is a systems problem. I would not point fingers at any one person, but I would say that the U.S. public health system or the 3,200 local public health departments across the country that really protect our national security have been grossly underfunded, under-resourced for many, many years and are operating with technology from the 1970s. Their latest and greatest technology in the vast majority of the cases are fax machines, and that should terrify everyone. 20 years ago, I spent eight inglorious weeks at the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., and they were inglorious, I promise, most of it my fault. But there, you know, I was in this seven-story basement of a building filled with people who ostensibly were responsible for, in my mind anyway, as a neophyte, the public health of the United States, of the individual American citizen. We have the Public Health Service. We have the Surgeon General. So when you see a president or a governor or whoever stand behind a podium and they are surrounded by this array of people, there is a belief, and certainly in my mind and I think in the mind of a lot of our listeners, that there is a centralized force of people who look at these things and when something pops up, not unlike COVID last year, that they spring into action. But that doesn't appear to be the case. All I can speak from is my experience. I've run a county and I've been state health officer for a state, the largest state with 40 million people. And I'll tell you that operationally, it is the frontline local health officers that are the public health response. Federal HHS and the entities underneath them, the institutions, do fantastic work, but there is not a direct line of command. There's no lever to pull at the federal level that's connected to all the frontline local health officers. In other words, and I won't get into the weeds on layered jurisdictional authority, but if one were to look at the layered jurisdictional authority, they would see that there's no fire alarm to sound that then directly correlates with a risk level that directly correlates with action that's immediately taken on the front lines. In other words, fire has that. If we look at incident command system for a fire response, communicable disease control on the front lines of public health largely does not. And the communication flow is slow and clunky. Again, fax machines, phone calls, emails, it's not even able to move anywhere close to the speed that a novel airborne pathogen does. Well, and fast forwarding a little bit, something that we talked about too was that 
you know, to your point about incident command. So right now, dominating so many of the headlines is this building collapse in Florida. There is probably an incident commander there. There is somebody responsible for the urban search and rescue teams, someone responsible for the building itself, you know, who's going to take care of that, all those things. And, you know, maybe FEMA's involved, maybe they're not, maybe it's the state, but there's someone who's coordinating all those resources to that one spot. But that doesn't appear to happen, as you said, at the public health level where it starts, you know, in Wuhan, China sometime late in 2019, before you know it, it's come here and, you know, everybody goes, okay, well, who's in charge now? And of course, when everybody's asking who's in charge, I guess the answer is no one is. It very much felt like that. And I think this is an example where the whole country thought federal government and the institutions we have would do frontlines operational containment and would save us. And that didn't happen. And, you know, again, I would say the current public health infrastructure that I described and the healthcare system does not have the ability to detect and rapidly contain a fast-moving novel pathogen. And indeed, we saw there was no effort to try and contain COVID. I see that as the largest failure point, but it's a systems failure. Our system is not built to be able to do rapid containment. And that's why I absolutely believe that's a national security risk. And so looking at what happened in January of 2020 and comparing to incident command, doing the operations early on in containment is the critical thing that's missing right now for us structurally as a country. Once you blow through your shot at containment, which I believe the United States probably did somewhere near the end of February because there was enough community spread that we couldn't find because we couldn't test that it was game over. Once it's game over for containment, you're just going into mitigation, which means you are managing as best you can cases popping up all over and it's going to be a circus. And so the focus for the United States and the systems, you know, that I would like to see put in place are zeroed in with containment. The one thing that you mentioned in the book and in our previous conversation was really about the containment, that once you realized what was going on, once the battery of people that you worked with who had gone back to the George W. Bush administration on these things realized what was going on, as one of our partners likes to say, you screamed as loud as you possibly could. No one was listening. And when it's all over, people will say you didn't yell out enough. So you said something about the fact that because we either were unable or unwilling to contain early, as early as late February, as you noted, that it left us with bad options in the aftermath. When the United States missed our chance at containment, then you're left choosing from a horrible option or a more horrible option. In other words, at that point, the debate became the economy or managing COVID. That is a false choice. And the reason why that's a false choice is if we had succeeded at containment, then we wouldn't have had to choose. People would not have felt they had to choose between containing COVID or managing COVID and maintaining an economy and protecting businesses and livelihoods. All of that action needs to happen during containment. When we miss containment window, then we have horrible choices. And I liken it to, you're a World War II fan, so I'll use the Munich Agreement example. I liken it to what Winston Churchill said after the Munich Agreement, that the government had to choose between war and shame. They chose shame, they shall get war too. And the analogy there for COVID is that it felt like once we had missed containment, people had to choose between COVID outbreaks or the economy. 
But the truth is, COVID outbreaks were going to tank the economy. In other words, the whole mission is contain this thing before we have to make horrible choices. The longer you wait to make a decision because of fear of what might happen, almost always ensures that you will get the result you don't want. That's right. But that's hard. It's super hard. You know, when I started out my career in medicine, I was planning to be a trauma surgeon. So I had lived and worked in Africa twice. I loved surgery. I specifically loved trauma surgery. And what I loved about it is it forced life and death decisions very fast with scattered data and unclear outcomes. And in The Premonition, Michael Lewis describes Carter Mesher talking about a patient that had a tension pneumothorax and the treating doctor who needed to quickly stab a needle into their chest. But instead, he sent for a chest x-ray to confirm, to get data, to have certainty. Well, by the time the chest x-ray comes back, you know, the patient's dead. And so the kind of bravery to stab a needle into your patient's chest, that's the kind of bravery and initiative that it takes during your shot at containment. So we live in a democracy. We have elected officials who are ostensibly responsible for leading and managing local bureaucracies, states bureaucracies, federal bureaucracies. And there's always a political aspect to this. That is the reality of our world. In China, they welded people into their apartments. They said, we're going to contain people by literally containing them, putting them in containers and not letting them out. So in your mind, how can a country who is basis is individual liberty, the individual is above the state ostensibly, how do we get to a place where we can say, you know what, you don't have to believe everything everybody says all the time, but when an expert says something in a democracy, we should probably listen to them. Do you believe that in our democracy in 2020, there was an opportunity for containment or 2016 or 2012? Do you think that we would have had a similar outcome regardless of who was president, regardless of who controlled Congress, regardless of who was governor? Are we a country that sort of doesn't like to be told what to do and doesn't believe what experts tell us? I think this is such a critical question to ponder. I have one perspective and, and always learning from others that have different perspectives. Here's mine. The question is, in a democracy, how do you contain a fast-moving novel pathogen? Because I watched what Wuhan was doing. Were they able to eventually contain it and get it under control by means that we would never do in the United States? Yeah, they were. But we're a democracy. And so my belief, and this is based on experiences I've had even outside public health, is that people will do the right thing if they know what it is, if they're led to do it. The way that we contain a pathogen in a democracy, first of all, needs technology that doesn't exist. But second of all, needs a level of trust and buy-in from communities. And that's why, as I thought through what the plan for the United States should be, I did not believe that government becoming a hammer would be successful. And the reason is I knew that health officers would have their heads chopped off one by one that they would take the fall for it. And that the more effective strategy is a grassroots strategy with buy-in at the community level, with community leaders, where people saw it as their patriotic duty to protect their neighbors and protect the economy, where people understood that whether or not their pizza parlor business goes under depends on what they and their neighbors do, and that we can save each other, we can protect each other, but it takes leadership. It takes a brave leader, a Churchill-type leader who says to everyone, listen, guys, 
this is going to get really bad. Here's what's going to happen. And here's what we need to do. I think the challenging piece for that is the United States does not have the technology systems right now to track in a centralized intelligence way what's happening in communities. We were doing it manually and there were incredible heroic efforts. And even today you can you know, find online where COVID is and how it's spreading. But we don't have real time data intelligence for local public health departments to share what's happening. And so absent that, it was always gonna be challenging. And to your question about presidential leadership, I believe that even if we had had the most competent president, let's say we had had an infectious disease expert with the bravery of Winston Churchill as our president, they still would have probably gotten a C minus on this response, maybe even a D, because it was a systems failure. So talk to me a little bit about, as you go through the book, you start to realize that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's not really what they do. But like, I think that to your point about what the individual American, the average American sees is they hear CDC, CDC says this, CDC says that, and 320 million people don't like being told what to do. We tend to believe them when they say something. And sometimes you're going to have to be the fall person to say the thing that isn't popular, but is true and necessary. So how does the CDC work? And do you think it's learning as an organization as it goes forward here? As we're not through COVID yet, I want to ask you about this Delta variant here in a second. But do you believe that the, the institutions and the systems have learned from anything, or do you believe we're still in this sort of stasis? I think institutions are learning. I have enormous respect for the new CDC director. I think she is fantastic and is absolutely who should be leading the organization, and she has my full support. I will also say that the systems problem for the CDC and other institutions is they've been at the mercy of political whim. And as Michael Lewis was writing this book, he asked me over and over, well, what happened to the CDC? When were they able to be brave and stab the needle into the chest? And I said, I don't know. And so when he uncovered the story about David Sensor from 1976, I sat down and cried. I read some of the original emails and realized the CDC used to be brave. They used to be what every local health officer today is forced to be. And that's the CDC I want to see brought back, that kind of bravery. But to do that is going to require rethinking the system structure and the political influence. I mean, the truth is now is that the White House may not be, quote unquote, operational, but nobody does anything without it. I mean, when I was in the federal government, every morning there would be a chiefs of staff call for all the departments. The White House led it. This is the macro message for today. This is the micro message for today. And Department X is going to run point on this messaging thing. And next week, Department B will do it. But we should not think of it as like a lot of independence right now. I think there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dedicated civil servants within those organizations. But the truth is from a leadership position, it starts from the very top down. And typically, regardless of party or who it is, nobody likes to tell the White House they had a bad idea. That tends to be a very diminishing thing to your political stock in Washington, D.C. So let me ask you this. As you moved from Santa Barbara to Sacramento, and now it's January, February 2020, take us through a little bit of what it is you saw as you saw sort of the tsunami wave rising, for lack of a better way to put it. Well, in January 2020, as I was watching sketchy news reports coming out of China that wasn't sure if we could believe them, but other data sources, all kinds of atypical data sources that were 
making me believe this was real and this was going to be a pandemic. I also knew based on my experience that the CDC was largely a research-based academic institution and very risk averse. The CDC does not act unless there's data, unless they have certainty, and unless they can back up their actions with data and certainty and studies that have been done. And so in a novel situation with a novel fast moving pathogen, I knew the onus would be on the local health officers. What's good about that is that's my tribe. The local health officers in California, man, those are the bravest people you will meet. And so I knew that people like Sarah Cody in Santa Clara County and others would do the right thing if they could. The challenge was at the state of California, there was no data. You know, here I sit as the number two health official for California in charge of so much with so much responsibility, the technology we had, you know, were so outdated, they couldn't move as fast as this pathogen clearly was. And so there was no reliable centralized intelligence. Why does that matter? Well, the most important question at the beginning of an outbreak is how many undetected cases are there in the community? So what I wanted to know, and looking at airport travel to San Francisco and LA, is how many cases are already here? We now know cases were circulating in communities in the US in December. And so maybe our loss of containment was more like late January. So in January 2020, watching the sketchy information from unreliable sources, knowing the way the CDC would likely respond, I was very worried that we needed to get the local health officers and the intelligence to them as quickly as possible. But that would mean testing. And we were not able to test local health officers authority that we talked about, their ability to do take any measures necessary, can be superseded by the CDC and FDA for testing. In other words, here we had all of these public health labs in California who wanted to test, who would have been able to test, and all these microbiology labs at these universities who were ready to get in the fight. They were not allowed to. They were told, you can't test, you have to wait for the CDC. To say I was a ball of stress in late January and early February would be an understatement. Well, I thought it was fascinating. And this is one of those things that if you do read the book, and I highly recommend it, that when some of those labs that you were talking about were saying to the hospitals, give us the samples, we'll do it for free. We'll do the testing for free. The hospitals are like, we don't do stuff for free. That's not how we do things. We have to charge for everything. And they're like, then charge us a penny. And they're like, the system's not set up that way. As opposed to like, we got 18 vials, you know, at, you know, uh, St. Mary's or whatever in Sacramento. It's a 90 mile drive to UCSF, like just get them there. Yeah, the system wasn't set up to accept free testing. So in other words, the system wasn't set up to respond to a fast moving novel pathogen. So in other words, we don't really have an operational disease control coordinated response on the front lines because of course it would involve free testing. Of course we would wanna rapidly get hospitals the new test that was developed and take every microbiology lab and say, get in the fight. What's amazing about Americans, what I saw is everyone wanted to get in the fight. You know, I love the tenacity of our citizens, right? The labs would call me, doctors would call me, individual peoples that, people that drove a taco truck would call when I was at the state and say, my resources are at your disposal. What can I do? What can I do to help? So it wasn't the people that failed. It, it was really the, the system or lack of it. 
you know, thinking about the very beginning of the book when Lewis is writing the introduction about what everybody, not only in the country, but in the world thinks of the United States' ability to respond to one of these things. He referred to the U.S. as the Texas Longhorns of pandemic response. Now, as a proud Texas Longhorn, that was both heartbreaking, but also very true, which is everyone expects we're going to be number one every year, and invariably we lose to Kansas or something. It was such a perfect analogy, as hurtful as it was. We have this expectation, right? We have 320 million Americans. We have the finest university systems in the world. We have the finest technology in the world. We have more assets in one place than have ever been collected in the combined history of humanity. And yet this thing shows up on our shores and collectively we seem to be unable to do anything about it. And I think to me, for a country that's already very down on its institutions, it further reinforced my fear is, is that the institutions weren't ready, able, or willing to help its citizens. Yeah. And boy, I understand that perspective. I would also add to that no one knew the role of the local health officer. The local health officers were the most important part of this response. They are the battlefield generals. They're the ones protecting national security. They're the ones protecting local economy. So here we have, you know, this, this situation in the U.S. where people think the institutions will come and save us. But actually, guess who's going to come and save you? Go figure out who your local health officer is and their amazing team of public health nurses. That's who's going to protect you. And so, you know, the challenge, I think, for the United States moving forward is looking at what type of system solutions do we need? What type of infrastructure do we need to tweak or build something new? I think it's a massive opportunity for the country. And, you know, Michael Lewis and I talked a lot through his process of writing the book about what are the lessons learned and what this means for the country. And I always err on the side of gratitude. And as hard and ugly and awful as the situation is, I try and say, where can I be thankful for this right now? And I think for the country, I do believe this is a moment of grace, that we have an opportunity to say all of our failures are laid bare. The good news is it wasn't the humans that failed. We actually saw remarkable heroes rise to the occasion. But we can see the fault lines through the system. We now have the technology that exists. Here we sit in Silicon Valley. Will we have the political willpower? I believe so. Does everyone agree that this didn't work and we want to fix it? Yeah, they do. And so putting together the solutions is the opportunity right now. And the reason why I say this could have been much worse is the flu of 1918 killed children and it killed young and healthy adults. And so we did not get the worst version of a pathogen, but I believe that pathogen is coming. And if the United States isn't prepared, I can't fathom what that kind of failure would look like when the case fatality rate is worse and impacts even more people. Well, as someone who suffered through the swine flu in 2009, I can tell you that that was no damn fun. And I know that that was one of those that's referenced in the book that it just petered out at one point. There was no rhyme or reason to why it didn't catch on. But that's the other part, too, which is in the context of my old FEMA days, right, the all hazards responses, there's only so much you can do and you can't account for every eventuality. But that doesn't mean you can't be ready when something happens. But as we saw with COVID, these black swans, which we have now like every five years, so we should probably call them white swans, it overwhelms the imagination, which then overwhelms political will, which then overwhelms the systems. And then, as you said, people like yourself and other individuals, it's left to them to try and do these Herculean tasks of saving you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. That's right. And a system that relies on an individual being a hero or individual vigilance 
that's not the long-term national security <laughs> response we want for the U.S. And so, you know, you bring up such a great point about swine flu or other novel pathogens where in the very beginning of the outbreak, the president and national leaders have tough decisions to make. And they make those decisions based on how bad the pathogen is and how quickly it'll move. So we don't have the ability in the United States right now to link outcomes data from the healthcare system with intelligence collected from the public health system so that we can characterize the novel pathogen. We're largely left to the mercy of other countries. For example, right now with variants, you know, we have to wait for other countries like the UK to have infections and deaths characterize the variant and then make decisions in the U.S. based on that. We're waiting for other countries to tell us the characterization. That doesn't work. That's a problem. And I think from a technology perspective, technology absolutely exists today that would enable us to characterize what is this novel pathogen? How does it behave? Who's going to get sick and die? How fast will it move? It's simply building that out within our structures. Before we get to Winston Churchill, the Delta variant, what is it? Who should be worried? Where did it come from? Where is it going? Well, the Delta variant, Delta is a new name that's been assigned to it, but this is uh, 617 or the India variant, you may have heard it referred to. And so what's challenging about this variant discovered in 2021 was largely the cause of the massively rising cases that we saw in India and tragic outcomes there. And so what's challenging is this new variant spreads at a much faster rate than either the alpha variant, which is the one known as the UK variant, B117, or the original COVID variant. And so to get technical a little bit, you know, we talk about R-naughts and R-naught is if you are infected with COVID, how many other people will you infect? And so the R-naught of the Delta variant appears to be somewhere between five and eight. We have a lot to learn, but the early data looks like it's about 50% more contagious than the alpha variant, which was about 50% more than the original COVID. So it's getting smarter. Yeah. In other words, and this is what viruses do. We know what viruses do. They mutate to spread more efficiently. They mutate to become more fit. So this variant is going to spread like wildfire. What we've already seen in the U.S. is it now accounts for between 20 and 25 percent of COVID cases. Um, in the U.K., it accounts for about 90 percent of COVID cases. Like, whoa, that happened really fast, right? And so um, what I'm very worried about with the Delta variant is because it spread so fast in undervaccinated places in the U.S., those unvaccinated people are at very high risk of getting infected. This is going to spread fast. And if you don't have two doses of the vaccine, you need to go get vaccinated right now. All right. So I was fascinated to learn that you have read numerous times most of the second volume of William Manchester's biography, towering biography of Winston Churchill, but that you stop reading when World War II actually starts. And so talk to me about what first drew you to that? And then what were the lessons that you learned? You mentioned a little bit, you know, with appeasement and Chamberlain, but give us a little bit of the sense of how you utilized sort of Churchill's history in that moment in time to inform your own decisions and your own thought processes. Oh, gosh, there's so many lessons learned. I have been obsessed for years with the geopolitical dynamics that led up to World War II, where a Chamberlain or someone who's going to do appeasement strategy is in power. 
Churchill is not in power, and yet Churchill recognizes the threat of Hitler. Chamberlain goes and tries to appease Winston Churchill with the Munich Agreement, thinking, if I sell out Czechoslovakia, then England is safe. And Churchill was the one who knew you do not negotiate with a pathological narcissist, and instead we should be taking action, aggressive action, to bomb Germany's cities and fight off the threat while we could. And so because Churchill had been studying Hitler for years, he knew a thing or two about not negotiating with a terrorist. I couldn't get past the Munich Agreement. It's the concept of containment versus mitigation. Your shot at containment means not negotiating with a terrorist or a novel fast-moving pathogen when you have the opportunity to contain it. Had England contained Hitler in those years leading up to World War II, the threat would have been neutralized. But because they chose appeasement rather than containment or aggressively going after the threat, they entered into World War II. And I love Winston Churchill and apply many of those lessons to my thinking not just about communicable disease control, but about the geopolitical dynamics leading up to COVID. This book literally sat open on my bedside table in January, and I would flip through it and look at lessons. I'll give you an example. To appeal to optics, Hitler really wanted to fly swastika flags on his ships. And the more effective strategy than using ships with large flags on them would have been using submarines but submarines can't fly big showy flags. In other words, there are certain attributes of the behavior of Hitler that actually hurt Hitler's operational response. But Churchill knew that. He'd been studying it for years. He knew Hitler would rather fly his swastika flags than use the more effective submarines because the guy cared about optics. And so I just love some of these lessons where Churchill had so carefully studied the enemy and how they behaved and what motivated them that he knew what their next moves would probably be. That's how I feel about pathogens. Even though you don't know where they're going to come from, what it is they're going to be or where they're going to go, the point is you know one's going to come. That's right. And we know what they'll do. It's just math and microbiology. They'll mutate to spread faster depending on how quickly that particular bug mutates, and it's different for different bacteria and viruses, but they'll mutate to become more fit. And today, like you had mentioned before, how the risk of pandemics has sped up, you know, it's not a black swan event anymore. You know, globalization has sped up the rate at which these pathogens can spread. So this is not a once in 100 year event. These happen more frequently and we have to be ready. So, Let's turn to the public health company or public health company. Tell us what it is you're doing and how it works. And I read a little bit in the book about, as we talked about at the beginning, the resources, which is if you're a public health officer, you can't get more than a fax machine. But if you have a good idea and smart people and a way to explain it, people will throw money at you. So talk to us about what it is you're doing. You know, when I left my role with the state, I was thinking about it constantly of this risk this infectious disease risk and the tools that are needed, this is not just for government. This is for businesses. This is to protect the economy. And yet those tools and technology don't exist. So I launched the public health company with the mission to develop the technology tools and provide the services to actually protect businesses and communities from infectious disease threats. 
And importantly, technology is a really important part of this. I knew it was going to have to be technology coming out of Silicon Valley. In other words, my conclusion was government alone can't fix this, but capitalism driven by a private sector company who's able to be flexible, move fast, take the risks, build something, try again, build it better. That is going to be the faster path to success because we can be innovative and flexible and fast in a way that government isn't set up to do. You know, I grew up in a Republican family. We had a picture of Jesus on one wall and a picture of Ronald Reagan on the other wall. And so I very much understood kind of the traditional Reagan Republican perspective on capitalism. But, you know, fast forward to 2020, I was serving a, a Democratic governor and surprised myself by that conclusion that government can't fix this, but a Silicon Valley private company can. And so really the mission of the public health company is we are building the technology tools to democratize access to that kind of expertise so that a large global enterprise, who, by the way, has a massive role to play in COVID, they've lost revenue streams, you know, their employees are impacted, so that they have the tools at their fingertips as if they had Charity Dean standing next to them and data scientists and infectious disease doctors, what would we tell them to do? And all of that thinking that I've used for years that, you know, people like Carter and Joe have used for years and that Michael describes in the book, importantly, that thinking needs to be in technology tools that can be given to both public and private sector with expertise so that the kind of fast moving technology that we need to beat the pathogen can be built at scale. And, you know, that's just what we're passionate about at the public health company. Like, look, I'm a public servant. So we're a private company. We're a Silicon Valley startup. But our mission is absolutely to protect businesses and communities from this type of threat. Innovation has, I think, always been America's best attribute. We have evolved. We have innovated along as many different ideas as you can. And, you know, we wish you all the success in the world. And we hope that some of the people out there listening to this get in touch. Where can we find the public health company online? Where can we find you online? Our website is phc.health. And there's more information there on what we do and who we serve. And so people can fill out a form there if they're interested in learning more. And uh, if someone wants to get in touch with me, there's a way to do that through the website. And everyone, you can always find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Dr. Dean, thank you so much for taking, I know, some of your very, very busy time to spend with us today. And everyone out there, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.